take Bullseye and more with you on the NPR One app. NPR One finds you the best from public radio and beyond. Surprising interviews, your favorite podcasts, and now an easy way to listen to your favorite station live. NPR One's ready to make commuting, cleaning the house, or alone time better. Find NPR O-N-E on your app store. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Michael K. Williams had a breakout role on the HBO show The Wire. He played Omar Little, a Baltimore stick-up man. Omar was a really intense and rich character. He was menacing. He robbed drug dealers. He was gay. And he lived by his own strict moral code. Williams played him brilliantly. But when he was cast in the role, he wasn't in the best place personally. He was trying, though. I put together this real gaudy package and a hit list of 10 people who I was going to send this package to, like the real, the headshot. My homeboy, his mom's worked for Tiffany's. So I went and got all these Tiffany pens and Tiffany boxes. And I sprayed the tissue with Tiffany cologne. Just, just, just going all out. And um, I sent them off for Christmas presents, right? I said, you know what, Mike, it's Christmas. Did it marinate? I said, watch my clocks. Right around January 10th, 14th. I should be getting some calls like, oh, my God, we want to see you. Man, here we are in March. <laughs> like, yeah, man, I, I, I kind of slipped into a darkness. I got a little depressed. Um, that's where I was at when I got a call from Alexa Fogel. Thank God for her. She scoured the streets of New York to find me because apparently she did not see my awesome package. <laughs> it's bullseye. <laughs> Coming up, I'll talk to Michael about what it felt like to be a club kid who got a real gig being a backup dancer. I felt like a like a grown-up. I felt like, you know, I felt like, damn, it's really possible to get paid doing something you love. You know, that wasn't a job. That was, that was my first glimpse into my career. You know, who would have thunk it? <laughs> Me from Brooklyn, from Flatbush, with a career. <laughs> That doesn't happen often. But first, I'll talk with actor and comedian Zach Galifianakis. His character in the FX series Baskets is a downtrodden rodeo clown. He's pretty nasty. Zach says he made it that way for a pretty good reason. There are people that are mean. Just go walk the streets. They're never represented. We're trying to represent people in this show that aren't represented on TV. They just aren't. It's so funny to me that a protagonist has to be one way. Why can't we stretch out a little bit and at least explore these other avenues? And I'll play you a rap song about death that makes me want to live. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. I'm Jesse Thorne. Comedian Andy Kindler once called Zach Galifianakis the thinking man's Polly Shore. It's because Zach has always been deeply committed to dumb jokes. But he always finds a way to make the dumbness his own. Galifianakis, obviously, these days, oh, well-known as a movie star, the uh, one-man wolf pack of the Hangover movies, among other films. He's also the man behind Between Two Ferns, uh, the very uncomfortable talk show deconstruction that boasts among its past guests the president. He co-created and stars in the FX show Baskets. It's in the middle of its second season right now. Baskets is about a sad clown. And when I say a sad clown, I mean literally a sad clown named Chip Baskets who fails out of French clown school because he doesn't speak French. 
He comes home to Bakersfield. And in this scene from the show, he's applying for the only clown job he can find at the rodeo. It says here that you studied clowning at the Clown Frances, Academy de Clown Frances. That's correct, at the Academy uh, de Clown and Francois. So, uh, chip, chip uh, baskets. Oh, my God. What a name for a clown. That's my real name. That's my, uh... No, your basket's a clown now, Pally. I have another clown name, and I prefer to go by that, if you don't mind. Okay. What's what's your clown name? My clown name is Renoir. What? Renoir. Can't have no clown here named Renoir. Your basket's basket's clown. You know how many of your clowns end up in a basket? That's the most perfect clown name I ever heard. Great. You're hired. I am? Sure. Don't take nothing to get hired around here other than walk in that door right there and tell me you're damn fool enough to want the job. Thank you very much. I don't pay enough. Mm -hmm. They all quit. You'll quit, too. I'll take it. Okay. Care for a cup of coffee before you leave? No, I'm okay. Thank you. If I remember correctly, that coffee cup is shaped like a toilet. Jesse, um, <laughs> take the high road. There's very little traffic on there. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a he's drinking from a uh, coffee mug in the shape of a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one of the things that you've always loved doing, and it's kind of an interesting thing, to be really into for a guy who made his name as a stand-up comic who mostly sat behind a piano is uh, just big, stupid pratfalls. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you conceived of this clown character partly because you just wanted to do things where you like ran into stuff and fell. Um, I would have done that regardless of whatever character. <laughs> because it's really fun to do. Um no, the rodeo clown aspect just kind of came as kind of a weird juxtaposition in my head of a guy that was bitter in his mind and then where he had to, you know, externally be happy for his work um, made me uh, laugh. But the physical comedy in it, um, yeah, just is, it's just something that I'm kind of uh, obsessed with right now is physical comedy. And it's not very it's not very popular anymore. I think that's why I wanted to do it. Well, I think everybody wants to do a a movie that has a lot of improvised punchlines, which means you have to have a lot of kind of setups, and you give a bunch of punchlines while you're in front of the camera, and so and you can't. It's very difficult to improvise a good fall because you have to not hurt yourself really badly. I'm my hips are. Uh... They've been out of whack for a few months because of this show. And I don't do the heavy lifting. There's a gentleman named Hayden Dalton that does most of the, the heavy lifting. But sometimes for a camera, you just have to do it. Um, but I, I'm too old. I'm too old to be doing it at my age. The world is very cruel to Chip Baskets, the main character of Baskets. Uh, he is no peach himself. <laughs> He's kind of a jerk to everyone around him, too. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you like when you were putting together this show? Why did you think, I want to play a guy who's a jerk, and also everything around him that happens is sad and awful? <laughs> <laughs> I 
There's um, a lot of really good laughs on this show. Like, I want to be really clear about that when I'm saying that. Right. No, but, I, I understand. And I, it, we made it hard on ourselves because you don't want to make them too milk toast or whatever the word is or, or TV funny. I mean, I always see these TV shows with very fast-talking people uh, and likable you know, edgy, if you will, and, and you know, in a very watered-down uh, version of life. There are people that are mean. Just go walk the streets. They're never represented. We're trying to re- represent people in this show that aren't represented on TV. They just aren't. Why can't we stretch out a little bit and at least explore these other avenues? Now, the problem with that, though, Jesse, is you kind of tend to write yourself into a corner but I think I – think, uh, What's the, the corner that you write yourself into? Well, without redemption or without growth of a character and he's – if he's just mean, you know, this is a serial structure, uh, a serial narrative. So I want him to have growth. I want him to have redemption. I want him to – but I want him to struggle to find it. I want it to be awkward and clumsy and funny and insightful and, and heartbreaking as life is. The way that we are also used to TV shows being, uh, I just find so normal and regular and not very creative. And I'm not saying that we have accomplished that whatsoever. I think I'm certainly uh, aware of the fact that certain people are turned off by this show because of its weird structure and what its, you know, its aim is. But you can't. Just keep the character mean is what I'm trying to say. To answer your question, yes, he is, but I'm hoping to explain why he is. And uh, I think he kind of represents our culture as being kind of angry and mad, and that was a tinge of it too in in coming up with the character. I mean there's something to be said for a guy who no matter what genuinely believes in something and – it seems like Chip Baskett's pretense is sincere, not opposed, that he really wants to do something special, whether or not he has the you know, the the ability or the context, either one. I mean, all I can do is just agree with that. I mean, I think it's a pretty grounded show emotionally. And given that Chip is kind of this – where we're catching him in a spot in his life – where he is this kind of prickly guy doesn't mean that he's going to stay there. We're just meeting him right now. People are complex. Uh, and he's not going to be one note like that, I don't think. I hope. I mean, he, he's got to – I don't know what to do with him, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they picked it up for a second series, and it's like, oh, God, they did? <laughs> I mean, didn't they see the show? (laughs) It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Zach Galifianakis, co-created and stars in the FX series Baskets. I talked to Zach last year. What do you see as the the objective of the show? I I think the main thing was to try to do kind of a a non-edgy show in a way that was kind of old-fashioned and innocent that had some dramatic um, undertones, if you would, but interrupted with really surprising jokes 
uh, that kind of come out of the blue that aren't expected. But it's a tricky thing to try to pull off. And, and even going into it, we knew it was hard. to. It's it's tricky. And the tone of it was everything. But I think Jonathan Kreisel, the director of it, got the tone that, that was in our, in, in our heads. And also Andrew Bird did the music for it. And uh, I think that also, you know, he helped set the tone, uh, you know, through his whistling. He's such a good whistler. Uh, um, so I think we all knew, were on board knowing what we wanted to do. But we also knew that it was a little bit risky to kind of roll out a show like this. So I was thinking about the last time uh, I interviewed you, which was actually quite a number of years ago now. Um Something almost like eight or ten, something like that, and it was before you became a movie star, and it made me think about how odd and surprising and amazing it was when you became a movie star. I mean, I don't think even when you got a starring role in a movie, uh, anyone had the expectation, oh, this is going to be when Zach Galifianakis becomes a movie star from here on out. Uh, <laughs> You know, like is that your way? Is that your way? That's your polite way of saying this will not last. No, that's not. I was, I couldn't have been more thrilled. I was like, wow, this guy I really like gets to star in movies. Like this is fantastic. And I, I wonder what it was like for you. Like I don't get the feeling that you, you know, doing the Hangover was part of a plan to become a movie star. Hmm. I may be wrong. Um, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, what was it like for you when that when that movie became just a, a extravaganza whirlwind of you know show business power force? Well, um, I wasn't good with it. Uh, I was the privacy thing is is the thing that just bummed me out. Um, but you know, you know, I would talk to my mom about it. She was like, "Well." You know, be careful what you wish for, Zach. I'm like, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I mean, not that I did, didn't want success. No, I'm not saying that, but I never thought it was ever going to happen. <laughs> I never, I never went to go, man, when this thing, ha- when this thing really breaks, you better be ready. I mean, never. It's not going to, it's not going to happen is well, what, what was the mindset. By the time you starred in The Hangover, you had had a relatively big television show on VH1 that had not been a success. There was a lot of really funny stuff on it. It was artistic success, but um, it had yeah. not been a success for you. And that was kind of in the past. And it looked like, great, I'm just going to, I'm going to be a successful stand-up comic, at least from the outside. Well, that show tanked. Um, and then I just went back to open mics because, well, uh, show business doesn't owe you anything, you know, just because you had to, you keep working and you keep doing the thing you, the initial you know, that love that you have for performing. Yeah, I just started doing stand-up again after that tanked, and then I got lucky. You know, Todd Phillips, the hangover director, saw me perform at a club, and then he kept seeing me perform, and I didn't know that. He was just kind of showing up and seeing, and then he asked me an audition, and I did. But then when that happened, if you're not into that kind of world, that whole Hollywood scene, whatever that is, and it's not of any interest to you. And also you're older and you kind of have more sense to you than be lost in that. It's a shallow existence, that kind of thing, I think. It can bum you out in a weird way. 
but no one now no one cares so it's great <laughs> you know um the hangover was cast such a huge wide net to a huge audience um that 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 kind of thing can be jarring to a, to to a person i think especially because your character in the movie is so big and silly and well, people memorable. think you are that yeah so they will sit down with you at a table at a restaurant because they think the character would like it. That's also a weird um, element to deal with because if people are sending you drinks and, you know, thinking they're going to be part of the party scene, which they saw you in the movie, well, I don't drink anymore and I'm, you know, I'm a pretty normal guy. So, But that stuff doesn't happen anymore. That, that hangover stuff doesn't – that craziness has died down. Is this NPR? Yeah. Can I tell you a story? Yes. Okay, so I was listening. So far, I I love this I was listening to an NPR station in the backdrop. I'm not going to tell what it is. Mm -hmm. But uh, they had a uh, film review on of their summer movies, whatever. And one of the movies they were speaking of, I happen to be on. Now, I am not one to run towards good praise, bad praise, but this guy was talking about a movie I was in. I was like, I'm going to listen to this one. It was on NPR. One of the critics says, after reviewing the movie, let's hope this is the end of Zach Galifianakis' career. (laughs) Then, oh, by the way, hold on, Jesse. I'm not even telling you the important part. I'm wearing a T-shirt of the radio station that I donated money to, and they're insulting me while I'm wearing the shirt. The other critic says, I hope you're right. There you are. Here's my $500 donation. Please send me a T-shirt. Please insult me while I'm wearing it. Zach, I'm really sorry uh, that you had to find out this way. Was it you? About how we feel about you and your career. Public radio across the board is what you're saying. Oh, there's an annual conference called the Public Radio Program Directors, PRPD. And uh, we actually had a keynote that was, what do we do about the Zach Galifianakis problem? Okay. Well, at least it was – okay, good. So it's organized. Okay, good. All right. Well, uh, yeah, that was was (laughs) gut-wrenching. Only because I was wearing the T-shirt. Had I not wearing wearing the T-shirt, okay, no big deal. I'll continue my conversation with Zach Galifianakis after a break. We'll talk about why the creators of Baskets thought Louis Anderson would be the perfect person to play his mom. Uh, P.S. Uh, they were totally right. He is. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Missing Richard Simmons, a new podcast that follows filmmaker Dan Taberski's search for fitness guru Richard Simmons. It's three years since Simmons disappeared, and Dan Taberski wants to know why. He talks to regulars from Simmons' exercise class, as well as fans, former friends, and celebrities, to understand who Simmons is and what happened to him. Subscribe now to Missing Richard Simmons on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. In any given year, there are more than 100,000 albums released. 100,000! That's nearly 2,000 albums a week. 
We know it's impossible to keep up with that much music, so NPR's All Songs Considered is here to help. Each week, hosts Bob Boylan and Robin Hilton find the best of the best songs for you to fall in love with. Subscribe to All Songs Considered now at npr.org slash podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Zach Galifianakis. He stars in the FX show Baskets. The show's second season is now on FX. I talked to Zach last year. I want to play one more clip from Baskets. Um, so my guest, Zach Galifianakis, plays both Chip Baskets and Chip's twin brother, Dale. And uh, in this scene, uh, Dale is helping their mom, who's played by the stand-up comic Louis Anderson, get ready for a family dinner. And um, they have two adopted twin brothers uh, who are younger than them and are successful DJs. And uh, they're going to be coming home. And so the, the mom wants everything to be perfect uh, for their arrival. Well, that's good. You got that. I got balloons, ribbons, glasses, plates. One more thing. We need a bigger table. See if we can get something at rent a room. You know, something in a chestnut, walnut, espresso. Um, what's the uh, black wood? Black walnut. Oh, that would be beautiful, black walnut. I'm happy to help out, Mama, but why isn't this circus twerp out here doing anything? Well, he's practicing. You can see that. Well, Mama, your medulla oblongata must be squeaky clean because he is your brain so washed. It's a part of the brain. Look, I watch your girls at the drop of a hat, and I don't know what your wife's telling them, but they don't like me. Well, you can say what you want about my wife and I, but at least I gave you grandchildren. Thank you, Dale. And don't forget to get something dark. So, Zach, how do you manage the tone of you performing as your own twin brother with a southern accent, a classic Bakersfield southern accent, <clears throat> and uh, the legendary stand-up comic Louis Anderson playing a woman without any notable elements of camp? Uh, the idea of have playing my twin brother uh was um the director Jonathan wanted to be that to be a part of the show one of the characters I wasn't 100% sure that that's a good that was a good idea but for the show it was good cuz it chip is very quiet and I wanted to play him quiet and it's just nice to have a kind of a verbose um twin brother that's opposite of chip um and kind of as nemesis in a weird way uh, is 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 a nice device in the show and then the lack of camp as far as that character and also with the Louis um, Anderson is um, – Louis is just hired as an actor. I mean I, there was no – oh, wouldn't it be neat if we had a guy play a – you know, there was nothing. It was just – he popped in our minds because of the way he sounds and it just seemed to make sense. And when we shot the pilot – did you know him personally? Louis Anderson, no. Yeah. No, I just knew his work from The Feud. Yeah, right. Um, so, uh, no, I've, I've always liked Louis' uh, stuff and um, his, you know, I, I, that presence in the show made sense to me. But when we shot the pilot, they put him in makeup and over, they overwomaned him, if you will, in a stereotypical way. And that was not what we wanted to do. It was just like he's an actor who happens to be playing a woman 
and there should be no tongue in cheek anywhere, and that's just how we wanted to do it. It's an homage. I interviewed a couple of years ago Rick Moranis. You know, when he was uh, roughly at the height of his Hollywood success, uh, he lost his wife and just moved to the East Coast to be with his family. And, you know, he worked once every other year or so on offers if they gave him a million dollars just to keep, you know. And I wonder, as somebody who became successful and immediately bought a farm in North Carolina, that has appeal to you. And if it does, what is the thing that you think, you know, that has the power for you to to keep you from doing that? From yeah, from just from just ghosting, just just getting. Is this going. a request from NPR? Yeah. So they they ask you to ask me through a question of if I could get out of the business, <laughs> Jesse. They didn't ask me to ask you that. They... It's literally a term in my contract. Oh God, I'm so sorry. But to answer, and you can tell the the jerks at NPR that uh, the truthful answer is. There's more to life than whatever you do for a living. There should be, um, and no matter what the profession is, unless you're married to your work, and that's lovely. But I have a friend that always he says, "Whatever happened to that so and so?" I'm like, "Well, maybe they just realized that the the business is hard to keep doing it." And you know, as a kid, you dream of being in it, and then you get into it, and you're like, "Oh, there's elements of this that are difficult." So what's the part that you love enough to uh, keep you doing it? I mean, it sounds really corny, but I think that connection with uh, – from at least in stand-up, I know I don't think I could ever stop doing that. That connection with getting people to laugh, it, it, I know it sounds so base. But that to me, I think if you broke it all down, I get a real kick out of that. I just do. Well, Zach, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It was really nice to get to see you and I really – I've really been so happy about all all the successes that you've had. Thank you, Jesse. Zach Galifianakis, he co-created and stars in the FX show Baskets. It airs Thursday nights at 10. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the actor Michael K. Williams, who broke through on the HBO show The Wire. In this interview from last year, he was talking about his Sundance TV show, Hap and Leonard, with James Purefoy. The show's since been renewed for a second season. It's about two friends in East Texas, one straight, white, liberal, and badass, one black, conservative, and gay, and badass. Here's a scene with Williams. He's out looking for a car that has a million dollars in it. He's doing it with a guy that he really doesn't care for whose name is Chubbs. So Trudy says you're a gay. What's that like? Let's try a version of this where you don't talk. You don't act like any homosexuals that I know of. You don't know any homosexuals. I'm just saying it's just rare to meet someone who's so comfortable in their own skin. I mean, you're like the first gay black man I've ever met. One more word. I'd be the last gay black man you ever met. Michael K. Williams, welcome to Bullseye. It's so great to have you on the show. Thanks, man. Thank you. You were a club kid when you were a kid, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was the one with the loud floral shirt on and 
you know, the, the, the high top fade and, you know, he wore his suspenders backwards with these enormously gaudy looking shoes. I, I was that dude. <laughs> when did you, when did you start going to clubs? How old were you? Oh, I was um, way underage, man. Um, my first like adult club I went to, I had to be somewhere around 16 years old. What kind of music were you dancing to? Um, I, I grew up liking like, you know, music to dance to, you know, um, I liked the Bee Gees. I loved the Jackson, Jackson five, you know, um, I, I, you know, I, I grew up with that, that Philly sound, that, that gambling huff, you know, that sound that, that hustle music, you know, disco, whatever you want to call it. You know, I call it that feel good music, you know, love is the message. And so I, I always gravitated towards up-tempo beats and, 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 you know, huge lyrics and, you know, that kind of migrated to what we now know as house music, to my knowledge. So I kind of went that way, you know, and, um, yeah, that was my thing. That's, that's why I, I homed in on my, my dance skills, actually. When you were, like, a teenager and in your early 20s, like, how many nights a week were you going out? Oh, well, well New York was a, is and always has been a weekday uh, kind of city. So, I mean, like, Tuesdays, Thursdays, you know, you might find a hot spot on a Monday, you know, a Sunday. But, like, Friday and Saturday, we usually gave that to the, you know, as what we refer to as the bridge and tunnelers. You You didn't want to deal with that Jersey City nonsense. Yeah, you know. (laughs) Shout out to Jersey. Newark. (laughs) When did you think that... um, you know, dancing in a club could be more than just a thing you did a few nights a week for fun and could actually be a job. Well, I think you're the first person that ever asked me that. One night there was a um, this, uh, Heather Hunter, the, the ex-porn star. She's a very good friend of mine. But when I first met her, um, she was um, branching out into doing music, and she had a... She had a gig at this club in New York called the Sound Factory Bar. And in the 11th hour, her dancers backed out. And she was contracted, you know, to have a, be on stage a certain amount of time with a certain, with a certain you know, level of stage show, stage performance. And she was freaking out. And she and I had a, um, a mutual friend in common. She called him. He called me. And uh, I was like, wait a minute. Heather Hunter, the legendary porn star, wants... Once get get me in my favorite club for free. Let me do what I love to do the most on a stage where I don't have to worry about nobody getting in my way, and I'm getting paid. I'm like, where do I sign up? And uh, that's that was really. After that, I was I was I was I got bit. I got bit by the bug. I loved it. Loved being on stage. How old were you? I mean, what are we talking about? Um, 26, 20, 25. Well, I got cut on my 25th birthday, and this was definitely after that. So I would have to be somewhere between 26, 27. I, I want to play a song that came out when you were right around that age, and, and maybe you can tell me a little bit about uh, what you remember about it and that time. This is uh, Kim Sims and Too Blind to See It. Wow.
So tell me about that, Michael. I'm sorry, Miss. I, I, I'm sorry. Excuse me. I was mean. Uh, man, excuse me. That um, I saw him, man. That, that was the first time, like you know, my, like my dream came true. You know what I mean? Like when when Kim hired me to be a dancer, I was homeless. You know what I mean? I remember when I got the call. I was being kicked out. So while I was staying, they wanted me to leave. And I got the call that she wanted me to dance for. And I went to where I was staying. I was packing up my stuff. And I turned on the TV. And I remember that was the same night that Mike Jackson, he released a video for him. Remember the time. You know what I mean? And he had got all the dancers from New York. And I remember seeing, like, Leslie, Big Les, Leslie Siegel, and, 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 and Josie, and, and Stretch, and, and all these, these young brothers and sisters that I looked up to and I aspired to be. Like, they was working with Michael Jackson. And I was like, one day I'm going to be there. You know what I'm saying? I'm sorry. It's just, I, ain't, I haven't heard that song in a while. It just brought back a lot of memories. That's all. Pardon me. Not at all. Was that the, was that the first... Uh... That was my first dance job. That's the first time anybody ever hired me to do what I'm doing now it was Kim Sims. That was my first job doing anything in this business. You know what I mean? Anything. You know what I mean? So I'm here today on the strength of that that one song. I mean, shout out to Kim Sims, man. How'd you get the job? You know what I mean? She, through a mutual friend. She had a dancer who was already... Um, her choreographer at the time, his brother from Brooklyn named Chad Brown, he was already working with her, right? And um, he had kind of recruited me to be like a like a standby, if you will, you know, like like a for for in case him or his other dancer who he was taking out on the road to to do her shows, and um, you know, I met her through him. So, but I was the standby, the backup, the it was the standby you know, in case one of them couldn't make this show. So for like a couple of months, I was just learning her routines. You know, he was teaching me the routines and, you know, just getting me ready in case we had to make the call, I could just go. And that was, you know, she she um, she um gave my shot, man. The call came. Chad couldn't make a show. And he put me on, you know, I was up, gave my shot. And uh, she ended up just keeping me, man. When that happened, did you feel like, uh, did you feel like a professional? Yeah, you're damn right I did. I felt like a like a grown-up. I felt like, you know, I felt like, damn, it's really possible to get paid doing something you love. You know, that wasn't a job. That was the, that was my first glimpse into my career, you know. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> Me from Brooklyn, from Flatbush, with a career. <laughs> you know what I mean? That doesn't happen often. You had done some kind of classic New York actor work um, earlier in your career, like being on Law and Order and stuff. Um, but from, from what I've heard, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you weren't really working when you went out for Omar. Um, is that true? Yes, sir. Um, my mom's had a um, she. My mom's thank God for her man. Shout out to Lady P man, Big Mama. She she my mother opened up a daycare in the projects where we lived and uh she was able to offer me a job so I took it and I I, I prided myself as a I 
as, as her what, administrative assistant. You know, she was old school. She still had her ledger book and whatnot, and she wrote everything down. I said, it's 2000. We got to get these computers going on in here. So I did all of that for her and, um, you know, with, with a lot of help. And uh, we implicated a free lunch program in the, in the daycare. And I would say all that, that took up all of 2000. It kept me occupied. And for most of 2001, up until um, around October or so of 2001, I was sitting in my apartment, and I, you know, I'd be doing the hood. You know, we put the TV on, but it's muted. You play music, and then, you know, see some spades, dominoes, you know, you know, you know beer, weed, whatever going on, but chilling, wintertime. And um, that was one of the things in my apartment, one of the nights in my crib. And um, I was there with um, Ruck, who just passed, man. Shout out to my brother Ruck, boot camp, man. He was there, me and him and my cousin. And the episode that I was on, Sopranos, came on TV. So I was like, okay, there's something wrong with this picture. Um, I'm here on the television, and I'm here in the room. I said, well, what's happening here? It was like, kind of like an out-of-body experience. And so I um, went to my mom. I said, look, I'm going to give this, this entertainment one more shot, right, mom? I said, if it don't work, it's me and you, baby. We changing diapers, right? So I said, listen, see what you need. I said, I need a loan. Give me 10 grand. She gave it to me. <laughs> reluctantly my <laughs> but she gave it to me and um i put together this new a uh, whole new reel because it, uh, it was the emancipation you know what i mean my emancipation the comeback you know what i mean i'm back on the block so i got a whole new reel a whole new headshot i bought a computer because back in them days it was before apple you had to go to the computer show at queen's community college and build your computer that's how we did it back in the day and um so boom and um i put together this real gaudy package and I, I put the a, a hit list of 10 people who I was going to send this package to like the real the headshot I, I went I went my homeboy his mom's work for Tiffany's so I went and got all these Tiffany pens and Tiffany boxes and I sprayed the the tissue with Tiffany cologne just just, just going all out and um I mailed it to 10 people um Kidar forget his last name right now who anyway, he's a music uh guy Jimmy Jimmy Roseman aka Jimmy Hinchman um um Shaquem Kapoor uh, Jackie Brown, Carmen, these are some some of the names that's on my list. I sent them out for Christmas presents, right? I said, you know what, Mike, it's Christmas. Did it marinate? I said, watch my clock. Right around January 10th, 14th, I should be getting some calls like, oh, my God, we want to see you. Man, here we are in March. My mom's just beating on my door. Where's my money? <laughs> like, yeah, man, I, I, I kind of slipped into a darkness. I got a little depressed. Um, this was, you know, post. I never really dealt with the 9-11 thing, um, I was having some stress issues with that and, you know, just being in the projects, you know, feeling unfulfilled. And I, I slipped into a you know, slight depression. And so, you know, that's where I was at when I got the call from Alexa Fogel. Thank God for her. She scoured the streets in New York to find me because apparently she did not see my awesome package. Yeah, you know I mean, but she found well, me. You sent it to Kadar Massenberg, the guy that was in Motown Records. I was desperate, You were trying man. to be the next Erica Badu. <laughs> Erica Badu or D'Angelo somebody. Come get me. But, um, yeah, you know, Alexa Fogel found me. She found me in my despair, and um, she asked me to come meet this guy named Omar Devon Little. It seems like it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a particularly smooth journey the next five, ten years of your career, though. You know... <laughs> I, I think I've I've been so fortunate and blessed. I think I've had a very um you know, I mean, at the end of the day I got nothing to complain about. Nothing at all. 
you know, in the, in the short amount of time I've been in this business, you know, especially you know, as an actor, the amount of success I've achieved, the, the 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 level of people I've been blessed to work with and learn from, is been truly like a, a dream come true. You know, I mean, I, I got people got to remember I only started acting. My first big job was The Wire. That was just two thousand what two we started. You know, I started on The Wire. You know, for I'm talking with someone who never acted before, never had any dreams to act, never went to school to act, you know, and I got given this opportunity, you know, and uh, grace of God, man, it was able to turn it into something, you know, that I could, I could really, you know, do good with. I'll finish my conversation with Michael K. Williams after a break. He'll tell us why he's so proud to have played Omar on The Wire. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Green Chef, the easy, organic way to cook. Green Chef's organic meal kits deliver fresh ingredients and healthy recipes right to you. Feel great about the food you cook and where it comes from. No planning, no shopping, only delicious dinners in no time. Choose the plan for you with options like vegan, paleo, gluten-free, and more. Go to greenchef.com bullseye to get $50 off. Green Chef, deliciously simple. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor Michael K. Williams, who you might know from HBO shows like The Wire, Boardwalk Empire, and The Night Of. He also co-stars in Sundance TV's Hap and Leonard. Did you have a point in your career where, um, especially working mostly as a dancer, you realized that you were going to have to figure something out because, you know, you started as a dancer as professionally in your mid-20s. Um, which is already which on, is late, yeah. Which, which is, is already the, on, the on the old late side. side, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of professional. There's not a lot of professional, especially you know, street dancers or urban dancers in the in, into their thirties. You know, man. Listen, shout out to the old heads, man. The old school brooms still know the corners. You know what I mean? <laughs> shout out to my old school dancers, man. My boogies. You know what I mean? But um, yeah, it's it's um, you know when I when I when I knew I had to make a uh, a shift was, you know, when I started coming onto the scene, you know, I was already, I had the scar on my face. And I went from, you know, um, Mike Williams? Who? Come on, dude with the scar on his face. Oh, yeah. yeah I, I, I will admit I played that card for like about a whole five minutes. And that, that got real old hat to me. And I said, well, if I'm getting tired of being referred to as the guy with the scar, I said, it's going to be a matter of time before they start referring to me as the guy with the scar. I, I said, I'm in the building, but if I want to stay in the building, I need to bring some substance to this. And um, that's when I got blessed to be introduced to the uh, underground, off-Broadway world of New York City through my brother, Ray Thomas. Again, from Philly, he bought me the La Mama, and I, where I met uh, Ellen Stewart. God bless the dead, and uh, they put me in this play, and I got, that's where I learned how to create character and layers, and you know what what is the method technique, what is the Meisner technique, and you know, and then I got with my my theater company, which I'm still with today, uh, Theater for a New Generation, un, under Mel Williams' tutelage. When he started, when he put his hands on me, it was a wrap. After that, I was going in these auditions, just knocking them down, and uh, you know, it was that. That gave me the substance and, you know, uh, to let the scar go. It's not about my scar. I'm not here because of that, you know, today. 
Was it scary to be as emotionally present and open as acting requires, or was that something that came comfortably to you? Dude, you just played a pop house song, and I cried like a baby just now. I think I think we know the answer to that. I'm a marshmallow here. I can't I can't run that fast. <laughs> you know, but um, you know that's where my strength lies. You know, is is you know being sensitive and vulnerable. You know that's who I am. You know, and um, ironically, the more I allow myself to be that and to allow people to see that, is where my strength comes from. You know. Well, let's hear a clip of you playing Omar on the wire. Omar was a stick-up artist who stuck up drug dealers, um, yes, and. Uh, sort of universally some combination of respected and feared in the neighborhood in which he lived, both because he had that code of only sticking up drug dealers and because he was the only person uh, foolish slash terrifying enough uh, to go around sticking up drug dealers. Um, Here he is in uh, season two of the show uh, testifying in court, and uh, he's just been sworn in. State your name for the record. Omar Devon Little. Mr. Little, how old are you? About 29, thereabout. And where do you live? No place in particular, ma'am. You're homeless? And when, so to speak. And what is your occupation? Occupation? What exactly do you do for a living, Mr. Little? I rip and run. You... I robs drug dealers. And exactly how long has this been your occupation, Mr. Little? Oh, I don't know exactly. I've been to the say maybe about eight or nine years. Mr. Little, how does a man rob drug dealers for eight or nine years and live to tell about it? <sighs> Day to time, I suppose. <laughs> Shout out to David Simon, man. Nina Noble, Ed Burns. This job was so important to you because it was it was such a breakthrough. I mean, it was the difference between you working for your mom in the daycare center changing diapers and you being a real professional actor making a living from being on screen. That must have really upped the stakes, you know, compared to... Uh, some of the acting vets who who could have felt confident that this would just lead to their next thing. Yeah, I, you know, I, I came on uh, The Wire extremely excited and very, very uh, passionate to do the best job that I can possibly do. And um, I was just so in awe of the people they had already had on the cast, you know, starting first with you know, Wendell Pierce and Sonia Song. You know, I had just... Seeing, I was I was like obsessed with her performance opposite Saul Williams with, in this movie called Slam, you know. So see her and you know Wood Harris. I was like, oh my god, you know what I mean? I, I, you know, like oh. So I, I I bought my A game, my A plus game actually, and um, I I dug as hard as I could to find Omar, and I just I just like I never stopped, like you know, going deeper with him. It was always. I can go deeper. What other nuances can I find? What other layers can I add on? You know, it was always, I just, I tacked that like a dog 
that hadn't been fed in so long, you know what I mean? And uh, I had a lot of support, a lot of support. It was, that was truly an ensemble. I want to play another great Omar scene from The Wire. Um, so Omar and his boyfriend, Brandon, are on uh, – they're, they're part of this stick-up crew, and they're about to go meet up with uh, another dude called Bailey. Um, who's in the crew in this scene. This is from the fifth episode of the first season. And they're packing up guns. And there's a little bit of profanity in this that we will bleep for the radio, but um, uh, just, you know, be prepared, America. You you always got to talk like that, man. This and that. I give it up. I lose half of what I mean to say. Don't nobody want to hear them dirty words, man. Especially coming from such a beautiful mouth. Wait for belly. Early bird catch the worm, dog. <laughs> I I heard that that kiss wasn't in the script. No, no, it was not. <laughs> yeah, um, there was a lot of newness on the set of The Wire. You know, a lot of, you know, first-timers like myself. And, you know, it was just so many characters and personalities and storylines to manage, you know, on a new show with minimal, you know, we had minimal dollars. They didn't roll out the red carpet for us over there in Baltimore on The Wire. So we had to make do, and and, and there was no room for error. The directors that would come in would keep things kind of like, you know, just, you know, trying to just get through it, man, because there was so much to manage. And I was like, you know, I forget which episode I had. to like, wait a minute. I said, okay, now I signed up to play a gay character, right? I know that I, do not have, I don't have to act feminine. I said, but, you know, don't, I, don't, I, think, I think it should be some more happening here. It should be like, it's, we know we're doing a real show here, right? So we got to keep it popping. So I went to my um my co-star at the time, uh, Michael, his name is also Michael, who played Brandon. And I was like, yo, Mike, we, I said, I think we, we got to step it up, man. I said, all they got us doing is holding hands and rubbing lips and playing in your hair. I said, I said we got to, like, you know what I'm saying, bring it. I said, you know what I mean? He says, what do you suggest we do? I said, yo, I think we should lock lips in this scene right here. He said, all right, when are you going to do it? And I started to tell him. He said, don't tell me. Cause I might freeze up when, when, it, when it's coming. Just, 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 just pulling for it. Just, just go for it. I said, I, I got you, right? I, and um, I forget what's oh, my man's name who was directing that episode. Oh man, I'm having, I'm getting old. Um, Johnson, <laughs> Clark um, Johnson, Clark Johnson was directing this particular episode. So he called us in for rehearsal. You know, he's like, yeah, okay, run the lines. And he was still doing some, giving some direction, doing something with the lighting or with the camera, or whatever. And he heard the kiss, turned around, looked at us. He said, whoa, whoa, stop the work. He said, run that scene again. Did it. Kissed again. He's like, he looked at me. He looked at, read the script. He said, you'll put that in there? I said, yeah, we put that in there. Nodded his head. He said, brave. <laughs> and I know from that point on, <laughs> they started calling Michael K. Williams to the set no more. <laughs> you know what I mean? It kind of stepped, it kind of set, you know, I set the tone, kind of you know, set it up. You know, there are there are a few characters that people are more fascinated by or identify with more on The Wire. And there are not a lot of shows, there are still not a lot of shows that 
treat the kind of situations and people that are on the wire with the respect that the wire did. And I think it really was, you know, it was really resonant for a lot of people for that reason. And so your character was the, the baddest of the bad on this show and also really sweet and, um, you know, touching character, uh, and was also gay. And, you know, you were dancing to house music in 1988. I, I imagine that you were reasonably comfortable with the idea of there being lots of different kinds of gay guys. But when you were just walking home in Brooklyn or something and somebody came up to you and said, oh, man, are you Omar? It must have been a trip to connect with people who who you were meeting that maybe didn't have that experience or didn't weren't comfortable having that experience for them to feel like they got to know Omar and that you get to have that exchange with them and almost be an ambassador. You know what I mean? Wow. Ambassador. That's a, that's ambassador. That's a strong word. But, um, you know, I, I definitely, you know, um, I've been approached a few times and, and, and with, um, with, with warm words about breaking a certain stereotype of black gay men in Hollywood or just gay men period in Hollywood always being one way, which was feminine, you know, and, you know, or out or, you know, so obvious, whereas that's not the entire gay community. So, uh, I, yeah, I got approached a few times and like, got nodded, like, you know, good looking, you know, good, good portrayal of the character, you know, but, um, I would say my proudest moment of having anything to do with anything in that perspective was when, um, I heard from Jay-Z's camp, that allegedly my portrayal of Omar had given him, given him some sort of uh, courage, if you will, to um, come out publicly and speak for uh, um, uh, marriage equality. You know what I mean? And I, I, I thought that you know he didn't have to, he didn't have to put that out there. So I heard through his camp that um, you know that was a, uh, that was part of his decision, included in part of his decision making to just to come publicly with that, and uh, that humbled me a lot. We're just about out of time, Michael, but I want to ask you about one uh, slightly frivolous thing. So you and a couple of your co-stars from The Wire are in one of my favorite music videos for one of my favorite songs ever, Who? which is What We Do by Freeway. You know, dude, you you uh, you are just you got you get, you're shocking me today. You just keep coming with these like little. Uh, who are you, dude? You all over the place. I got a lot of respect for you, man. That's that's dope. I know yeah. that I, I rem when that song came out, I, I was a fan of The Wire and um, and seeing that video, you know, on like on 106 in Park or something like that, uh, it was like, oh man, other people watch The Wire. <laughs> like, <laughs> this whole time, I thought it was just me, but it turns out it's me and maybe Jay Z and Freeway and Beanie Siegel. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'll never forget the first time um, I realized that someone else was, people were actually watching this show. Uh, I was going in the city to meet a friend of mine, and I had the radio on at Hot 97, and, um, you know, it was, the, the, it was Friday mix, you know, hip-hop. And um, what's the one, um, the dude from the um, G-Unit camp, I think it was uh, uh, Yayo, Tony Yayo. He was spitting live on the radio, and the dude said, um, I jump out the car with the Ruger on fire. Something, something, something like Omar on the wire. When I tell you I heard that, I almost crashed on the Brooklyn Bridge. I was like, yo, yo. <laughs> Man, oh, yeah. I was like, okay, I guess, I guess people are watching. Yeah. 
Well, Michael K. Williams, I sure appreciate you uh, coming on Bullseye. You're, you're welcome here at any time. It was just a pleasure. Thank you, man. Michael K. Williams from last year. The Sundance show Happen Leonard, which he co-stars in, is a ton of fun. It got picked up for a second season. Really great show. He's really great on it. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. The Gravediggers were a rap group dedicated to death. They were a supergroup, really. Prince Paul, the RZA, Fruquan, and Poetic. For the purposes of the group, they changed their names to The Undertaker, The Gatekeeper, The Resurrector, and The Grim Reaper. In the early 90s, when gangster rap was cresting, they didn't rap about killing. They rapped about death as a metaphor. Now, that doesn't mean it didn't get dark. Here's Poetic, a.k.a. The Grim Reaper. I force my teeth on a gospel track. I'm not an apostle, but I bring the axe to your back. I chew and attack like crest on plaque. After that, your world is black. You drop into a hole. Your mold separates from your soul. Behold, the grave diggers told you beware, but you didn't listen. So now we appear. The gravediggers were obsessed with the resurrection of the mentally dead. Sometimes they were scary, sometimes funny, sometimes beautiful. Their first single, 1-800-SUICIDE, is basically a list of absurdly intense ways to end your life. Or, as the gravediggers saw it, end your ignorance. By the time the early 2000s rolled around, a second album had been less successful than the first. Honestly, the first wasn't that huge. Prince Paul and the RZA had left the group. Things had been dormant for half a decade. And there had been one huge change. In 1999, Poetic, the Grim Reaper, was diagnosed with cancer. The doctor said he had three months to live. He fought hard. It bought him a few years. But Poetic must have thought some of that time, about how this metaphor he'd played with, with the gravediggers, was becoming terrifyingly real. His last verse on record is one of the few hip-hop songs that's moved me to tears. You hear a lot about death as an abstract in songs, but death wasn't abstract to poetic. It was present and absolute. The verse is from a song called One Life, and it's a clear-eyed embrace of the simple physical pain of dying and of the terror that comes with not knowing what will happen after your last breath. In a genre that usually prefers mythology to reality, it's almost too real. Paralyzed on the bathroom floor by pain Last month I endured, but now I can't ignore Feels like railroad spikes being stuck in my liver And my dying eyes crying, body starting to shiver Crawl upstairs from the basement, calling my sister Dawn, help me, I ain't feeling too healthy 
stomach walls burning, head spinning and turning, waiting for the EMS 310 in the morning. Rush me to emergency, screaming like a newborn. The pain's too strong, maybe my soul's trying to move on. They hooked me to the IV, put me through some x-rays, gave me Demerol to kill the pain, that was the next phase. Early the next day in a hospital room, moms and pops in the room, three or four docs in the room. Uh, test results suggest you're colon in your liver, it's so cancerous, you got three months left. Three me months and left. death is playing chess, ever since then, my strength is the most high, my fam and close friends. The last F is set free, bless me with a verse, staying healthy comes first, look at me, things could be worse. When I'm wrestling with the everyday, I sometimes find myself thinking of Poetic, just trying to get up and get to the phone so he can call his sister. I think about his life, over and about my age now, and it strengthens my resolve to do what I can with what I have. Poetic, I never knew you, but I thank you. That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Our show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson with help from Christian Duenas. Production fellows at MaximumFun.org, Kara Hart and Nick Liao. Our senior producer, Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally. You can actually download on a pay-what-you-will basis a lot of the music that he made for Bullseye. Look for it on Bandcamp. Our theme music was recorded by the Go Team. They gave it to us along with their label, Memphis Industries. Our thanks go to the Go Team. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're there, check out Pop Rocket. It's Bullseye's sister show. Every Wednesday, Pop Rocket brings you a fascinating and funny conversation about stuff like the Oscars, TV reboots, classic albums, basically everything we love to love in pop culture. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.